Hey listeners, it's Morgan from H Industries. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I'm reading through how SpinLaunch secured NASA funding for a 200 kilo or 8,000 kilometer an hour launch system, and I reevaluated my own foundational numbers with mounting with Terra. This article is available on Medium and was released on April 15th. It goes through a day in the life of being a founder, the orbital mechanics basis of my problem, the inertia problem, steel bending moments, and closing remarks and all that. So without further ado, uh, let's move on to A Day in the Life, which is one of my favorite absurdist Beatles tracks. SpinLaunch announced the other day that they've secured NASA funding and assistance to model a wild idea that I hope works gloriously. It's a centrifuge, winding up a ruggedized satellite package to over 2,000 meters per second, then launching it skywards into orbit, which is pretty damn cool. It's also perfect timing, as I've just finished an intense period of work on magnets and have finally surfaced for air. But the news did give me a feeling that I should go back and check over my own numbers around orbit speed and travel time. I've spent most of the last three years trying to generate marketing, crowdfunding interest, and resolving numerous problems while protecting my IP. On April 3rd, I submitted a 7,500-word revised academic paper on superconductive electromagnets. It was possibly the hardest thing I have ever done, and I still want to re-edit it, but it's in. And more than ever, I am now utterly convinced the design generates the right kind of force required. But then on April 9th, I found a problem in those foundational assumptions that threatened to derail everything. Was this the real Wifio moment from a really simple Excel error? For a solid day, I felt like I had failed. How had I not seen this most simple element of force application in geometry? Well, this is the end. Might have to get another job. And the rest of that is redacted. What a day. Uh, it's a bit of an emotionally rough ride to be a founder. I will say one day to the other, there is such a difference. Nah, hold on. This is our fifth with moment in as many months, and every problem so far has had a solution. So chin up. The TLDR is, I don't have a Simulink numerical model ready yet, the satellite design does work in Excel, and there are options to make the orbital mechanics reasonable. So maybe for John, let's find funding so I can get fresh eyes on the many, many problems. And then I found out my 11-year-old dog has a golf ball-sized tumor. What a week. When it rains, it pours. So it's time to own my mistake and find funding or a job. ASAP. And a little advice came from Pokemon Arceus, which I lost a solid month of downtime to, and I felt this arrived at just the right time when writing my revised paper, which I really struggled with. And as you approach one of the final encounters, another character says to you, this will be hard, but the plateaus we must climb are the platforms we will stand on. And I feel that sums up the founder's journey pretty damn well. So anyway, onto the orbital mechanics. The goal is, was, to launch two-ton cargo loads for next orbit arrival. And Mars orbits at about 1.88 years, or every 687 days. 
So using a swarm of satellites set up in a pyramid with superconductive magnets, the calculator said one second pulse times 50g times the number of layers. And the target acceleration rate applied once for each layer. And that assumption and both of those numbers are pretty wrong. Like so very geometrically wrong. Uh, it's... I guess that is the mark of progress when inspecting work you did years ago with a lot less knowledge and spotting a silly mistake. Uh, at the moment, though, I felt like that mistake had literally cost me the world. So if you're applying force as an impulse for time, say one second, it's easy to multiply that in an Excel sheet, but it doesn't quite match the reality. Electromagnetic fields lose effect according to the inverse square law but magnetic force dissipates to the inverse cube. So that force application drops rapidly as the distance grows. We theoretically have to put a cubed increase of impulse to accelerate evenly against this inverse distance cube function for the active pulse time as the object moves away, just to remain even. Now, even if we had the stored energy available to do so, the physical geometry just doesn't line up at 50g, or whatever the end result may actually be. Uh, stay tuned, we will get to it. Uh, one whole second is a really long time. Now, when we consider Spin Launcher's proposal, they're doing a centrifugal windup for a while before reaching an exit velocity of 8047 kilometers an hour, or 2,235 meters per second. At 36 kilometers an hour, an object travels 10 meters in one second, probably putting it well beyond the effective range of any electromagnetic field, and that speed is still far too slow. So the goal is to reach Mars within one orbital cycle, uh, or you know, preferably a low multiple of it. So we are aiming at the right spot to arrive in time as Mars travels past on its next loop around the orbit. So, looking at the constants, Mars's orbital period is every 687 days. Now, that's 59.36 by 10 to the 6 seconds, and it's averaging at a distance of about 229 million kilometers away. So, 229 by 10 to the 6 by 10 to the 3 meters. Now, the standard for gravity is 9.81 meters per second squared. G-force measurements are great, but they're also really good for a quick eyeball verdict on whether a launch plate and cargo can structurally survive some of the forces. And if you consider it as a standard engineering beam problem, and you start to look at that acceleration as force applied, then we, the numbers get pretty interesting pretty quick. So let's take g equals 9.81 meters per second, or 35.3 kilometers an hour. You know, we are aiming for a one second force application, so it's a pretty helpful measure. From the average Martian distance and orbit, if we shot for arrival time on the next orbital pass, how far does the cargo need to move for a one second pulse? Uh, we will return to the cubed expansion in a second, uh, because we've already established most of the thrust has to happen in that first fraction of a second. So if you take 229 by 10 to the 6 by 10 to the 3 divided by 59.36 by 10 to the 6 over 9.81 times 1, 
you come out with a number uh, 3,857 meters per second, or 393.25 g. Assuming it is a one second pulse is now looking utterly impossible when you consider that the 393 g golf speed means the cargo would be 3,800 meters from the launch point as the pulse finishes. Assuming instant acceleration is again a little unrealistic, but it illustrates just how far that cargo travels at the target speed in one second. Between the travel distance and the inverse cube drop-off, it really is looking like the shortest feasible pulse is the only answer. Now, we're lucky that NV3SN magnets can achieve 100 TU field pulses in fractions of a second, and those designs are sustainable for 10,000 to 200,000 pulse lifetimes. For a trusted source on the veracity of all this magnetic propulsion force stuff, check the last paragraph on page 7 in the linked article. NASA found that solenoid magnetic fields can apply almost as much lift as a helicopter rotor in 1960. A list of our references can also be found in the article. And the first superconductive cable had barely been made in 1960, let alone optimized to today's standards. And the braided Rutherford cable design still remains the preferred accelerator cable du jour, with a few modern material substitutes. For the structural analysis, a 393G acceleration of a two-ton payload for one second creates a point load and a bending moment that I thought would be larger than most Lovecraftian Eldritch horrors. Now, whether it is a single central application point and the edges bend in, or the ends are supported and the center bends, neither, neither looked particularly good. The question became, are we breaking the steel beam? Or if not, would the acceleration compression force on the cargo crush the contents? Are we able to change the base equation? So the forces look a little less terrifying? Um, double checking my foundational math was supposed to be quick after reading some good news and reassuring. You know, not an exercise in unveiling ever more cosmic horror. Doubling the orbital pastime is the key to reducing the acceleration required, and considering the force application time point made above, we must halve the applied pulse time or less, though this does give exactly the same force result as above. If the cargo could take two orbits, or 1374 days and 3.76 years, with the applied acceleration time at half a second. Uh, we could perform the same process over again and give a quarter second pulse time and four orbit or 7.5 year arrival, but it still doesn't alter that bending moment of mass destruction. Doubling the orbital period to the four year arrival is getting less pitchable also. And the only way this sort of delivery timeframe works is if we transport really big cargo. So no matter what we do, if we take four orbits and you know expect it's 0.25 seconds of applied acceleration, we're still coming out at 393 g. With bigger satellites that lift more, the containers can be heavier steel and ruggedized against the forces. This includes scaling the plate thickness up 
to increase the stiffness and the moment of inertia to resist the bending under load. A 20-foot full-scale shipping container could fit 20-ton load with plenty of padding. To be lifted into orbit and able to survive the proposed force application, it won't be a standard shipping container. However, the generalized terms and mass values are pretty helpful for first-pass metrics. All loads and forces are calculated using the 20-ton freight goal, though actual capacity may be less, as this figure will encompass the delivery mechanism mass, and may be optimized a little lower. The cost efficiency of a full container will take a few rocket trips back and forth to balance, so the lengthy arrival time and slight reduction in capacity may just be enough to make this feasible. The acceleration of 393g is split between four satellites, force equals mass times acceleration with a 20 ton load times 393g over four, it comes out to almost 21 meganewton per satellite. The nine satellites below then provide a correspondingly lower offset per satellite to this momentum, again quartering it and giving almost five meganewton per satellite. The H-Mark Zero design might be functional for pushing two ton but 20 ton is a very different story. These NB3SN magnets are absurdly powerful, but I may need to scale up with the thicker yoke rod, a few more coils and a couple extra capacitors for a Mark I design. Each Mark Zero is approximately 1200 kilos, which isn't that bad. It's about a sixth of the heaviest ones in orbit. And that gives a two square layer, almost five ton of inertial balance. Again, fine for a Mark Zero 2-ton load, but the goal now looks like it should be 20-ton containers at 7.5-year arrival time, not 2-ton at 1.88-year. So a Mark I design aiming at about 5-ton each would be ideal for adding more power. Now let's move on to the inertia problem. Are we really just throwing tennis balls at a bowling ball? It's the square pyramid shape that allows the swarm to harness the pulses of the satellites in each layer below. Every higher layer object has four satellites in a square underneath it. Each layer of horizontally tethered satellites acts as a singular inertial mass, with failure of the electromagnetic tethering determined by the same beam bending mechanics. Is the strength of the neighboring satellite's magnetic attraction able to overcome the load acting on the satellite under the higher layer object. And square division of the tethering force from each satellite being linked to four neighbors in a mesh distributes the impact pretty reasonably. The force model of the pyramid being launched outwards from its fixed orbital location is partly reliant on the base inertia, equalizing that of the smaller structure above. The physical reality of this function may differ somewhat due to spring motion and the reaction mechanics in orbit, but for now it's an adequate representation until the Simulink model is built. So considering the number of satellites in each successive layer of a square grid, where does the base layer squared size eclipsing the sum of all previous squares stop? You know, layer one has Theoretically, one satellite, layer two has two by two, and four is a fair bit greater than one. Uh, layer three 
is nine satellites, again, greater than four plus one. Uh, layer four with 16 is greater than nine plus four plus one. But layer five is 25, which is less than 16 plus nine plus four plus one. So somewhere between layer four and five, a thruster assembly offset is needed to balance the inertia. And again, this is just first past assumptions. But if we return to that idea of the Mark Zero satellites being kind of small and the cargo needing to be bigger to be worth it, then let's run the numbers on Mark Zero, then make a call on Mark One. Layer four becomes 1200 kilo times 16, which is 19.2 ton, versus the sum of layers three, two, and one, which is 1200 times 14 at 16.8 ton. So clearly that two-ton container is good, provided you can solve the bajillions of other problems and maybe accept a longer orbital arrival time. With a 20-ton load on the Mark Zero, it starts to look at 36.8 divided by 19.2, which you know makes it 192% of layer force mass. So doubling the base layer could theoretically do it. Uh, but again, you know, first pass design. It might not be realistic given that a much wider base is unable to contribute the force necessary, or we might not be able to increase the density. So scaling up becomes necessary. A reduction of the layer count would establish a greater margin and if we consider the potential for shear failure and the bending moment from Eldritch Hell, having four satellites support the steel plate is the most sensible decision. Not a single satellite in layer one applying a point load and all four corners of the plate bending outwards. So if we run the numbers on a five ton Mark I design in three layers total, layer four is 5,000 times 16 at 80 ton versus layers 3 and 2, 5,000 times 13 was 65 ton. So that leaves a 15 ton freight load to be inertially balanced. And with a bit of a thruster offset, we could probably get that freight number higher. The target is set now at 20 ton freight on a 7.5 year trip time. This gives more than enough room to reinforce the structures and ruggedize the design against the incredible stresses. So the success criterion white paper is focused on design of the superconductive solenoid to enable the electromagnetic propulsion, but it also proposes a sample launch plate design, a two by two meter steel square, five centimeters thick is 1,570 kilograms. And that will be the landing pad for cargo containers and will act as both the ferry and the shield against the electromagnetic propulsion pulse wave. As the intense electromagnetic field spike is applied in a short burst, the energy does not penetrate beneath a superficial skin depth in the plate. The induced current within the plate skin is what generates the weak magnetic field that opposes the strong one in the pulse wave effectively buoying the cargo outwards on this electromagnetic wavefront. To reduce the burden of propulsion and inertia on any one satellite, the 2x2 grid arrayed under the plate 
will be used to apply the pulse wave from each of the plate's four corners. The swarm geometry gives granular control of the propulsion vectors and a degree of orbital targeting from minute variances in that applied power at each corner. Division allows the 393G target speed to be achieved by four satellites acting in concert, but the bending of the steel plate must still be addressed. So with the launch of all four pulse waves together, targeting 393G for the 20-ton cargo, the container is effectively pressed into the steel plate. Now in reality, this is distributed across the footprint of the container area, but at first we treat it as a point load on the center, with the edges of the steel beam being held up by the pulse wave. The pulse waves must equal a point force requirement of 21 meganewton per satellite at each corner, and almost 84 meganewton in total, to exceed the theoretical point load of the cargo and meet the required exit velocity. Now that is a pretty big ask. If the cross-section of the steel plate was more than double at 200 times 12, with a steel elasticity modulus of E equals 210 GPA, the cross-sectional moment of inertia, which is width times height cubed over 12, is 28.8 thousand centimeters to the four. Now there are various great online engineering calculators available, and for the inputs above, the steel beam is deflected by 23 centimeters, which is not exactly flat anymore or viable in the first place. Dropping the beam span to 1.5 meters gives a deflection of 9.7, and adjusting the thickness further then lowers the deflection. But maybe additional support structures can be incorporated in the design so it becomes a non-issue. The first pass equations always give clues where to look for the optimization and find simplification areas, but it is impossible to build a great model if the ground level working is wrong. There are hundreds of problems with this idea to figure out, but it does look like this one is fixable. So it wasn't a true WIFIO despite what I thought. It's not a bad outcome at all either. Despite the earlier concern that the bending may just be the idea's undoing, even if the force application got solved. So, closing remarks and all that. I mean, mistakes are always there to be found and can always be fixed. So this is me owning my mistake. At first, thinking 15 seconds of force application was possible before realizing even one second is a huge challenge. And now we make improvements to take the next step forwards, knowing my calculations are that bit closer to reality. That problem solution low high is where the reward is in the founder's journey and what makes it all worthwhile. And I will not lie, it is a journey through eldritch terror beyond comprehension sometimes. But plan, do, check, act, repeat. So simulating finite element modeling of all parts is about to begin. And the applied force load balancing is one of the first problems to do. Elements of the material above will feature in an orbital mechanics paper submitted to a suitable journal once the electromagnetic force application concept paper is peer-reviewed. And back to our head of security, he came out of surgery today and is one happy boy. So liver enzymes are still elevated and a few other problems like mild anemia, but you know, the worst has passed for now. And this probably isn't my last mistake, 
So when I find my next one, I will adjust, improve, and continue on. Maybe add a new podcast. Thanks for listening.